Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you've been diagnosed with a chronic condition like PCOS or diabetes, you may have heard that you have to follow a certain diet or a particular pattern of eating. Maybe a doctor even handed you a list of foods to eat that you've never even heard of or aren't part of your cultural way of eating. This creates the perception that only one particular way of eating can be healthy, and it's often a very westernized idea of eating. That's why I'm so excited for today's guest. Amber Charles Alexis is a public health nutritionist and registered dietitian certified in integrative and functional nutrition. She is also known as the cultural dietitian, and she dedicates her voice to diversifying nutrition recommendations for the Caribbean diaspora. Uh, welcome, Amber. I am so glad you are here to talk with me today. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Awesome. Thank you, Melissa. I'm so excited to be here as well. I'm honored to be one of your guests. Yeah, so I am, a, as you mentioned, a dietitian. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. I pursued some of my studies abroad in the U.S., so I've had a really nice mix uh, across the region and in the U.S. Uh, pursuing nutrition, nutrition studies. And within my practice, I do focus on helping my clients, you know, accomplish a particular health outcome particularly focused on lowering cholesterol, balancing blood sugars, but being able to accomplish those while incorporating their cultural foods. So culture is a major focus of my practice. That's why I'm known as the cultural dietitian. Uh, I wanted it to be at the forefront of what we do so that I'm showing some level of regard and respect for that person's heritage and, you know, nutritional practices and showing them that you can accomplish help or you can optimize your health without compromising that aspect of your heritage or cultural background. Yeah, I'm also a <laughs> um, dietitian writer, so I write for Healthline Media. So I have those two, those um, are my two focus areas right now, writing and private practice, culture-focused nutrition. That's so interesting. That's so similar to when I first opened my practice, I was also writing for Healthline as well. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So we, we share that in common. For those of you who might not know, Healthline is an online magazine that uses evidence-based information. They only publish evidence-based information. And one of the things that makes them a great resource for health information is that registered dietitians and doctors and other health licensed healthcare practitioners are the ones who are doing the writing and the fact checking to make sure that the information they put out is medically accurate. It's uh, sweet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so talk a little bit about how did you become the cultural dietitian? Like, was it from the very start? you knew that that was the direction you wanted to go with in your practice or was it something that kind of evolved? Was it something, I'm wondering if it was something, you know, being in the U.S. maybe? And yeah. yeah. Yes, definitely. So even in Trinidad and across the Caribbean, 
we were introduced to the American Food Pyramid and then the MyFace. So there are several countries. So I traveled to that spend some time in Grenada and Barbados, um, you know, at the hospitals there, as well as throughout the community practicing nutrition. And some of these smaller islands do have their own nutrition guidelines, but even with Trinidad, we don't have our specialized guidelines. So it was something that became evident to me that, you know, we really need to be able to focus on honing in, translating that message of health culturally. But it was not until my internship that it really, really hit me in the face. I was like, oh my gosh, we need more cultural competence. I saw the struggle between dietitian and patient when, you know, culture was a barrier and not being able to understand that patient's culture and how do you then adapt these recommendations to support that. Fortunately, I was able to like communicate some. So in Trinidad and Tobago, we have a massive heritage of West African descent and East Indian descent. So our culture is really a fusion of that. We do have Asian heritage as well and Spanish, Dutch and Venezuelan. So we find that the foods are really similar. So I was able to during that time, sort of translate some of the foods to my pre-staff and be like, okay, well, this is, you know, some of the items that are found in the foods and this is how it may be used. So it really helped me realize that this is something that needs to be given more attention. And then I found myself feeling very passionate about, you know, not having to compromise your culture, not telling someone that you cannot eat this anymore, but rather empowering them by teaching them, how do you incorporate these foods? You know, yes, there are some foods that maybe you need to, be more mindful of the amounts and the frequency, but then there are other ways that you can continue to use these staple items and, you know, make them work for you. So it's really difficult to tell someone of East Indian descent, don't eat dal because it's high in carb, you know, and it's such a staple or telling someone of Asian descent who practices the traditional culture, you can't eat white rice because it's high in carbs. Like understanding that we need to be more flexible with our nutrition messages Nutrition is not going to be cookie cutter and being able to move away from that. So I felt very passionate about it. And I decided I was stuck in the U.S. for a few months after I graduated. I wasn't able to return home because of the lockdown with the pandemic. And I'm like, okay, I need to do something to keep my brain active. And I started a blog. And through the blog, it started off as Amber Charles RDN. And I'm like, no, I'm going to be changing my name officially because I am married. (laughs) And I owe that to my husband. (laughs) But I'm like something that I really think embodies what I wanted to do. So initially came, it started off as balanced nutrition because that's that's where I like to be. But then I'm like, oh, that's a really popular name. I like switch it up and I was like, so many balanced nutritionists, balanced dietitians. I'm like, no, I really want something that embodies the message that I'm trying to send. And then I'm just like, oh, the cultural dietitian. And I did my searches. I'm like, there's nothing like this out there. Yes, this is it. This feels like me. This feels like the message that I want to send. I want someone to see that in the name and re- already have an idea of, you know, the type of content you're going to get, the type of information, my focus with respect to nutrition. And that just really felt like it embodied me. So when I returned home in January, I registered my business under that name. And that's my trade practice for cultural dietitian. Awesome. So it's been, it's been a really interesting journey. But then the Caribbean, I would, may not have seen it to that extent, because we, we still eat a lot of our traditional foods here, but once you step away from it a bit, it's pretty difficult. And even finding culturally sensitive information online is difficult. Yeah, so much to, to dive into there. You know, I think even as US-based dietitians and learning the food pyramid back in the old days, but learning my plate now, I don't think that that we're aware of how much the nutrition guidelines and recommendations in the US, you know, affect other countries and and how they, you know, may also be pulling from our guidelines. And I I mm-hmm. do know it's a problem worldwide when it's this very westernized diet pattern that's then being extrapolated to other countries all over the world. Right. Yeah, it's one of those things that it makes you <laughs> mad why 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 is the american food way of eating so dominant it's not like we're known for a healthy diet (laughs) and it was so interesting because during my time there um you know a lot of my american friends were like oh i really love caribbean food or or they love trying foods of different cultures 
And I'll ask them, so like, what is your culture? What is your food culture? Well, we don't really have one except for maybe Southern style eating. So it's amazing that it seems like everyone everywhere sort of looking at what someone else is doing and trying to adapt that. So in the Caribbean, we're looking abroad and then abroad is looking in here and what? So it's just really fascinating that we keep looking outward for, you know, that connection to something a little bit different. Yeah, we have so many similarities in in our the beginning of our practice because I I don't know if you followed me back then, but my business was Avocado Grove Nutrition because avocados mm-hmm. are my favorite food and Groves is my last name. And then <laughs> I got married, and so you know I kept I kept my last name as my middle name. I didn't hyphenate, but I now mm-hmm. have a new last name. I had in the meantime sort of changed to the hormone dietitian on Instagram for, you know, search purposes. And so people would know what I did. And what happened was so many people were finding me on Instagram. They then couldn't find my website or my Facebook (laughs) or anything. So I had to like officially refile my business Mm -hmm. name and, you know, I'm glad I didn't go down the process of trademarking avocado growth nutrition and waste that time and money. But, you know, now, you know, the, the hormone dietitian is my trademark. Yeah. Yeah. I met you. I actually met you at the marketing dietitian. I'm like, who is she? She's so, she's so bold. I love it. (laughs) And then that led me to your hormone dietitian page. Yeah, so this podcast is geared towards listeners who who have hormone conditions, you know, really towards consumers and not healthcare professionals. But that if you do stumble upon my mark, the marketing <laughs> dietitian account, it's just, you know, I get so many questions from other dietitians about where to find me or how to learn what I know about business mm-hmm. and you know, my jokey answer is always like, oh, we'll go work in New York City advertising for 15 years. Um, That being said, like, you know, I share, I share some marketing tips over there for dietitians just for funsies. Like I'm not selling anything or anything. Mm -hmm. So I love that on your website, you say, I'm not anti-weight loss. I am pro-body autonomy. And I believe in equal access to appropriate medical and nutritional interventions, regardless of your body weight. I think we really have to, you know, meet people where they are when it comes to their desire to lose weight, which is often what brings someone into a dietitian's office. But we also you know, really know that we don't have much control over what the scale decides to do or not do. And, you know, absolutely everyone deserves access to compassionate care, no matter their size or their background. What do you focus on with your clients instead of weight? Yeah. So similarly to you, I do focus on those healthy habits on building those healthy habits. So whether a client is focused on weight loss or not, we do look at things like your lifestyle. We focus on nutrition. We identify the basics of nutrition. I have like my little basics that, you know, all foods fit. Um, but we do focus on what it's going to look like, you know, being able to identify foods that make you feel more energized, make you feel better on your body, and also being able to distinguish those foods that maybe they are pleasurable foods, but also tuning into the impact that they're having on your body and then making an informed decision about how do you want to navigate that body. We focus a lot on, you know, sleep, quality sleep and stress management and movement of your body and also engaging in movement that you enjoy. So you don't have to force yourself to go on a run if running is not something that you enjoy, but if you do like a different type of movement, then, you know, you do that. So that's where you're going to build these consistent habits. Yeah, so I focus on that. I try to give them, I know there's this unfavorable idea towards this concept of lifestyle changes now, but that is still sort of what I where I operate from because I do believe in educating and empowering my clients beyond like, you know, them needing to work with me forever and ever. Otherwise, they don't know what to do. Like I, I give them the skills, the knowledge so that they can begin operating independently. That's my goal with clients and helping them to understand. So not just telling them, eat this, don't eat that, but helping you to understand, learn more about food, understand your body, understand all the things that go into health. And even though you may want to lose weight or that is still your goal, that there are so many ways to measure your progress beyond what the scale is going to reflect to you. 
I also approach food uh, that way a lot in terms of how do I want to feel, you know, and it's, we've, you know, had enough experience eating, we've been eating all of our lives. And so we know, okay, if I eat this, it's probably going to make me feel a certain way. And so, you know, sort of having that understanding and then knowing that ultimately it's, it's your decision, you know, like I, I might choose to eat something that's going to make me feel like crap, (laughs) but then I, I, I'm not allowed to beat myself up about it. If I make that decision either, it's like, oh, that's, you know why you feel this way. Cause you eat that thing that doesn't work for your body. So that's one of my basics with clients. Like I have my clients message me like, I feel so horrible. I eat this or can I eat? And I'm like, yes, you can. And no, don't feel bad. Like it's completely okay. And I think that's the shocker for them. It also probably makes their process a little longer than they expect because I think they're coming in expecting me to give them like this very stringent plan and you cannot deviate from it otherwise. And I'm like, no, you like you have the power. You have to reclaim that power of being able to make a decision about your nutrition and removing that guilt and shame from those foods mm-hmm. and being able to enjoy your process. Like whatever it is you're working towards, whether you need to lower your cholesterol, Understanding that you can still have fun and a diet that you enjoy, a dietary pattern that you enjoy while, you know, achieving these goals. So that's my approach to nutrition as well. I think it's funny, you know, how so many people are afraid to work with a dietitian because they they have that fear that I'm going to go and she's going to tell me I can't eat any of my favorite foods. Yes. And so... I always feel like when, when patients are working with me, they leave that first appointment with such a feeling of relief and (laughs) some of, some of the feedback that I get after working with clients is, Oh, you know, I, I lost weight and I got my periods back, but I was eating, you know, I felt more free around food than I ever have before. And it's just kind of, you know, refreshing to, say you can include some of these things. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, in terms of all the lifestyle stuff too, it's, you know, I feel like that is maybe an answer that a lot of people don't want to hear sometimes is, you know, we need to be getting enough sleep. We need to be moving our bodies. We need to be taking active steps to reduce and manage our stress levels, but it's not a quick fix, you know? Exactly. I always make it very clear, like on my discovery calls or my you know, initial calls with clients, especially those who come saying, you know, I want to lose 20 pounds. I want to lose. I'm like, listen, <laughs> my approach with you is not going to be fast. I am not going to guarantee you this, you know, 20 pound weight loss in the next three months. This is my approach. Even if we are looking at weight loss, this is like a gradual parameter that you can set for that goal. But also understanding that it's not a quick fix. It's not a fat diet. Those are the things that I'm interested in giving you the power back to really, you know, make decisions. And I've had a particular client, she was like fanatic about her results and her results being not feeling out of control around food, mm. not having, she's like, it wasn't restricting. It changed her whole mindset around food and understanding that like, she's like, you need to market your program as something other than diet because it's not a diet. I'm like, it's not a diet. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, and again, it's something people don't really like to hear, but when you're eating a balanced diet and you're working on those lifestyle things and you're losing maybe a half a pound a month or one pound a month, that kind of weight loss is nothing that people get excited about. And like, you know, it's like, I lost a half a pound this month, (laughs) but that's the kind of weight loss that's sustainable. You know, that's the kind that's going to stick as opposed to going on some fad diet where you drop 20 pounds in January. Well, you know, I want to check in with you in June and see where those 20 pounds are. Cause they're probably right back on your body, you know, plus five, plus a couple friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, much like my practice, you use an integrative and functional approach with your your clients, and you also you know believe in the power of food as medicine. Can you talk about how you know the the idea of maybe a healthy plate doesn't have any specific look, and why promoting something like 
wild caught salmon, organic brown rice and kale may not necessarily be healthy for people from a holistic perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So I do think when we send an image, like an illustration of a healthy plate, it sends such a larger message that this is what health means, like these specific foods. And, you know, it's lacking the nuance of flexibility and durability throughout that diet. Now, depending on where you are located, these foods may be something that you do not have access to or that are very expensive. And just being able to understand that there are local options that are going to be equally as nutritious or very similar in nutrient profile and that you can actually have these versions of that instead. So, for example, I've had many discussions about salmon with my husband and he is a believer that, you know, this wild-caught salmon, the pink color is the best and that's the most nutritious. I'm like, we have a little salmon. He's like, yeah, but it's not the same color. I'm like, well, it lives in a different environment. <laughs> so that's one thing. <laughs> but also just acknowledging that, you know, this is we're using, as you said, these Western ideas have been adopted globally, but with a lack of nuance with respect to make it suit, like use a concept, but adapt the foods that you have available to you. So for example, we can recreate a meal like that using local salmon, dashing or like taro, and then spinach. And it's going to be nutritious, equally nutritious compared to like having to get these very specific foods. But I've seen that pattern of where people are thinking that health means steamed broccoli and chicken breasts and mashed potatoes, especially if you're trying to like if you're a bodybuilder, that's a standard meal. So it's really, you know, I don't think it's possible for any one nutrition guideline system to really accommodate that across the board, but it does become the responsibility of the professionals within that region to also understand that this is a concept and we, didn't, we need to be able to adapt this concept to where we are from. Yeah, so that healthy plate can look different and still be nutritionally balanced. I think that, um, you know, that concept that wild salmon is like the most healthy source of protein, you know, I'm on the East coast. And so to fly wild salmon from Alaska here is very expensive. And, you know, does it really even make it the most sustainable source if it has to travel so far to get to me, you know, salmon in a grocery store here can be $24.99 a pound. Whereas, you know, and I do, I do admit I'm very lucky in this, in this arena that I live, you know, on the, on the New England seacoast. And so lobster, on the other hand, here is like $4.99, $5.99 a pound. So right. I think people get surprised when they see, you know, that we eat lobster a few times a year, because it seems like such a luxury, but here mm-hmm. it's a local food and you can buy it literally off the boat that day, you know? Yes. Also, I did a post once. It's it's the only, there were only been two, three now, three posts where I had to turn off comments entirely oh. on Instagram. And one of those was, sister, you can eat white rice. Um, yes. And I was, you know, <laughs> and people, people got mad, like mad, mad, you know, about, about the white rice. You know, it's it's more about the balance of the total diet that you're eating and the balance of what's on your plate and what you're eating that white rice with than about any food in particular. I think, you know, this is maybe aligned with the kind of stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. So I think what has happened is that there is a dominant culture and that translates to food messages as well. And, you know, there's this overarching thought and misinformed thought that certain foods, like, you know, to be healthy, again, similar to a post you had where you were saying, you know, you need to make a decision if you want to work with a health professional who's not like that picture of ideal health or something like that. So, you know, you're, you are deemed as promoting or not promoting health based on what you see. And for some reason, white rice has been really demonized. <laughs> Something I love. It has been demonized, but it continues to have its benefits. And even if we take it to another level, there are some people that need to have white rice over brown rice for medical conditions, medical needs. Mm-hmm. You know, so aside from that medical need, 
there's still a way that you can incorporate these foods without compromising your health, without it being a negative thing, without it having to be so hard and fast, black or white. Like there are gray areas, especially in something like in the field of nutrition. And when you think about individuality and individual health needs, and also not being able to tell someone's health from looking at them and knowing what they are going to need. So it's important for us to maintain that flexibility in the messaging because it's going to reach who it has to reach. And, you know, those who are seeing something that is different as being wrong also need to really begin to educate themselves through that flexibility of information. And sometimes just taking what you need and leaving what you don't and letting someone else, like, like let a message really help someone else instead of it just being about what you think helps means and should look like. Yeah, absolutely. When people come back and say things like, well, white rice is, you know, the the highest on the glycemic index, it's going to spike your blood sugar. It's like, when are you ever sitting there eating just a bowl of white rice by itself? Like we very, (laughs) we never do that. And, you know, just Mm -hmm. the fact that you know, white rice is the basis uh, for so many different cultures across the world. How can this one food be, you know, the epitome of evil, basically? It's ridiculous. And I think when that's done, it also sends a message to these cultures that you are inferior, you know, what you do is wrong, which is a really harmful message to send because then someone is going to think, oh my gosh, I cannot be healthy unless I'm eating in this particularly Eurocentric way. But I don't know how to do that because that's not what I've been raised with or taught, or that's not my heritage. That's not what I'm going to find on the table at Thanksgiving or New Year or any particular socialized, social event where food is at the center of it. So it really does send a message of inferiority and that something is wrong with what you have. And that's not the case. Yeah, that reminds me of, did you hear, um, it was a few years back, maybe two, three, four years back, there was a health coach in New York City who decided to open a quote unquote healthy Chinese restaurant in New York City. And so both she and her her partner were white and they basically, you know, took out all of the, you know, processed vegetable oils and the fried foods and they they opened this restaurant and their idea of what a healthy Chinese restaurant was. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a problem for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. but also, you know, there's this, you know, sort of Americanized idea of what Chinese food is, but there are healthy options in every culture. And mm-hmm. honestly, when we get, when we get takeout, I often, you know, turn to Chinese food as takeout because I know I can get, you know, a mixed shrimp and vegetable dish or a mixed chicken and vegetable dish. And it's like, okay, we've got the carbs, we got the protein, we got the vegetables. Like what more do you need? Really? You know, I see it as, as a healthy choice or there are healthy choices rather to be had no matter what culture you're eating from. And there are equally you know, maybe less health supporting um, choices <laughs> to be had from all foods, including and maybe especially from the westernized plate. <laughs> yes, I agree. So I did not know about that, but I do find it bizarre that, you know, not having been a part of the culture, probably possibly not even immersing yourself in that culture for a period of time to really understand it, that you are providing this healthier take on it. So that's really fascinating because sometimes I do see like healthified cultural uh, program foods. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So it's really just about, uh, you know, remaining open-minded to differences. I've come to learn, and it's one of my mottos now that different is not necessarily wrong. It's just a different perspective. But also, as you said, there are ways that you can make a lot of cultural food balanced. And Mm -hmm. We're not sitting down eating a bowl of white rice. I even post like pictures of bread sometimes on my stories. I'm like, if you love bread, you know, here's some ideas for how you can incorporate, continue to include bread as part of your daily nutrition. But, you know, we're adding things. So we've moved away from trying to take away to really being able to add more things to that meal, to that plate, to your nutrition, making it more complex, diversification of nutrients, all of these lovely things, without just like thinking of this one food as being so bad that you need to avoid it. And also it's really just about remaining open-minded to something that's different. And then trying to learn more about, well, how can I 
make this more of a balanced meal than necessarily just try to avoid it completely or think that it's really a negative thing to do. Yeah, you know, being Italian and coming from an Italian background myself, bread is in my blood, basically. (laughs) And, you know, when I buy bread at home and we have bread, you know, in a sandwich or with toast, with nut butter, Mm -hmm. avocado or something, I'm, you know, at, at home, the kinds of breads that I buy, you know, are those more whole grain options usually. That being said, there are certain occasions where I may be at a family dinner for a holiday or something, and someone has picked up the loaf of the most, you know, the, the real Italian bread where it's so white and fluffy in the middle and it's got the toasty sesame seeds on top. It's like, I never say no to that bread (laughs) in that situation, you know, cause it's like, it's got all those memories of childhood and it's just, it's so delicious. And, you know, so, um, representative of the meals we would eat as children and, you know, yes, on a day-to-day basis, I try not to eat a piece of bread on the side of pasta and have a yes. carbs on carbs on carbs meal. But, you know, there's there's room for those sorts of things in our yeah. diets. It's about being able to give yourself that flexibility, you know, and a permission to explore food and respect. Like, you know, that food's a different purpose beyond nutrition, but it's, you know, so representative of different things. And just being, you know, open to experiencing that and allowing yourself that, you know, to experience that with family and in that setting and not be like, oh my gosh, I didn't check my app today. Or maybe, you know, how much calories is, you know, how many calories are in this? And just, you know, really enjoying it for what it is. Yeah. So, you know, you're kind of, you know, your background is, is kind of unique in that you come from not only the registered dietitian training, but also a public health background. And, you know, it's definitely different when you're thinking about population health versus individual health and looking at groups of people as a whole. So, you know, I'm sure this is something that you've come across in your work, but you know, recommendations that are put out there for what we should eat and not eat don't necessarily take into account a person's financial abilities to purchase said food or their access to healthy foods living in, you know, areas of food apartheid. It's just really difficult for some people to get certain foods. And I think there's this kind of, again, this a superiority message that fresh foods are best and, you know, only these foods are healthy. Can you talk about a little how you navigate that? Absolutely. So yes, there is this concept of fresh is best, but it's not the only way. It's not the creme de la crop of nutrition. And for me, especially that public health background, understanding your audience, understanding who you are reaching out to, what their needs are. And you have to take that financial aspect into account. That is where, you know, many people will say, oh my gosh, eating healthy is so expensive or it's so difficult to do simply because we have to yet continue breaking that message down into simpler, more accessible messaging for those populations. So looking at like in the Caribbean, I love, love, love rice and peas. That's a balanced meal. And it's the simplest. It's one of the most affordable things because what you can do is purchase dry beans, so if I'm speaking to someone who would have a financial difficulty or maybe they're, you know, not having the same access as someone else, I look at different ways that this is nutritious, this is this, this is that, like, you know, being able to meet them where they're at and not, not send the wrong message that, well, if you're unable to purchase these very specific foods, then, you know, you're not going to be able to attain health. We do talk about the benefits of canned foods. We do talk about the benefits of buying fruits and foods, fruits and fruits, uh, fruits and vegetables. You know, when you think of wastage, when you think of being able to, they're going to be more um, accessible. They're often less expensive than buying uh, certain fresh items and making that work for you. And then sometimes just something as simple as rice and peas, do not feel ashamed that you're having rice and peas at lunch. You know, it's completely nutritionally balanced. It's, you know, uh, affordable for you. So really being able to identify what they have access to and helping them to some of those messaging because some of the broader messaging, you know, it's really based on foods that are expensive, that may be expensive or typically are expensive or not accessible. 
So really undoing some of that messaging, depending on who I am targeting, particularly in the U.S. when we look at those wrongfully termed food deserts and, you know, what they do have access to and how do we send that message to them when they get foods from the food pantry and they're getting canned foods, like, this is okay. Teach them how to use that instead of saying, well, you know, it's not going to be the best thing because it's high in sodium. That's what they have. So you have to meet people where they are without judgment and simply tailor that message in a way that's going to help them really take better control of their health within the circumstances that they are. Yeah, I think, you know, there's sometimes the processed versions are actually better. You know, I'm thinking about like in the summer, obviously fresh tomatoes are abundant and they're delicious, but in the winter, I am not paying good money for a pink sad imitation of a tomato. I'm going to buy the canned tomatoes during the winter to to get me through. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are, in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. I think, you know, also there can be in in the messaging and the sort of ideal of what's healthy and the recommendations, what to eat, not maybe necessarily the, you know, national guidelines for what to eat or sometimes not what other dietitians are putting out there, but definitely in other areas of health, there's this very privileged idea of what wellness looks like. And, you know, it's, it really kind of comes down to acknowledging the privileges we do have and then, you know, making it work for other people's lifestyles and situations. One of the things, you know, I I think about time privilege a lot too. Mm. It's like, you know, you see people who are like, oh, I would never buy Mm. almond milk in a carton because it has preservatives and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't know about you, but like, I don't have time to milk my own almonds every morning. (laughs) Some of these people kind of come from situations where they just have endless supplies of time and money Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sort of extrapolate that to this is what I do. So this is what everyone else should do too. Exactly. And I love that you brought up this concept of time privilege, because even when you're thinking of someone who's really busy, not making them feel guilty that they have to purchase out more often, but again, empowering them and teaching them, okay, well, maybe here are some options that we can discuss and look at how do we maintain your health even when you're purchasing out because this is the reality of your life. And I'm not going to tell you that you need to leave your job (laughs) because it's so easy, but how do we now, you know, work around and integrate, you know, our approach to facilitating all of these things. That is an absolute privilege. Sometimes I have to remind myself as well, I do have, you know, access to a number of things, but also the messaging that I put there or working with some clients, still just meeting them where they're at and understanding that this is what we have to work within. Yeah, I think some of those expectations that get put on people who, you know, may not have a budget for food are that they're going to make up for the budget with their own time. And if you look at some of those, like I saw it circulating again recently, so it's kind of top of mind, but can you build a meal plan for $25 a week? 
for one person? Could you develop a healthy meal plan? And I think, you know, you're looking at things when you're looking at those sort of suggestions that are like, cook beans from scratch, (laughs) cook, right? It's like, okay, well, there's four hours of my day, you know? And I, I think I was very fortunate during my internship, I got to do a rotation with the Cooking Matters program. And, you know, I think it's a really great program because it involves people in learning how to, how to cook and learning about making those choices in the grocery store. And, you know, it's sort of a, a good hybrid between like, how do you make it affordable while still not spending 12 hours a day in the kitchen? Yeah, absolutely. That's a complaint as well. That's something like I wrote an article about canned beans and there was, there were comments like, oh, but it's not healthy. And I'm like, yeah, you just have to like, you know, not everyone has the time or, you know, the energy to say, well, I'm going to brace my peas, soak my peas and make sure that they're braced and then cook them the next day. Like, you know, you just need to use what you have and make it work for you. Yeah. I can't remember what the exact figure is. I think if you rinse your beans, <laughs> your canned <laughs> beans, it reduces the sodium reduces by something sodium. like 50%. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a lot. It's a large number. Yes. <laughs> so like there are, are ways you can make things more healthy, but oh, that's another big one is like just demonizing processed foods. And it's like, well, you know, there's minimally, minimally processed and processed. then there's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, ultra processed foods, which are very, yes. very different. So I think one of the things that's a common misperception when you get diagnosed with a chronic condition like PCOS or diabetes or, you know, high cholesterol, which you were talking about, is that you you have to eat in a certain way. And usually what's recommended is a very westernized eating pattern, like the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet. You know, can you talk a little bit about why this approach doesn't work for everyone. And, you know, is it kind of what you were talking about before about making, swapping those substitutions in? Yes, absolutely. So we will find that the Mediterranean diet is so named because of where, you know, the region that is coming from, the, the that population and that pattern of eating there, which is not necessarily reflective of a global pattern of eating or even within the Caribbean region, for example. That's not the style or some of the specific foods that are being highlighted. So what I love to do, again, I love to take the concept and adapt them locally. So we will look at things that, you know, particularly here, something that we are having a challenge with is that doctors are telling patients who may have been recently diagnosed with diabetes or even had it for a longer period, don't eat any ground provisions, which is like a major staple here, or you can't eat any carbs. And I mean, of course, there's no direction. If you have PCOS, they're telling you, I'll completely cut out gluten and dairy as, you know, sort of generic uh, recommendations that are being made. So it's a lot of having to contend with that type of information and then being able to, again, ed- education is really a major part of, you know, being able to help someone uh, manage their, their condition. So, you know, educating them about these are the foods. Yes, they provide carbohydrates, but this is also the latter reason for some of these foods. So when I think of the Mediterranean, for example, because I do like to look at like anti-inflammatory foods, educating my clients about foods that are pro-inflammatory, things that you can expect to increase that in your body. But again, adapting it to what we have available here. And I love, like I would send this article for Healthline about cultural foods to reduce inflammation. And I'm like, yeah. So you looked at passion fruit and fermented pepper and, you know, red sorrel, which is very popular here. And just being able to, again, adapt these concepts, make the appropriate adjustments I also love to talk about sardines as a fatty fish to have. You know, so salmon is a thing, but here we do have access to sardines. We do have access to local salmon, but also sardines and smoked herring. And like actually being able to rely on different types of fatty fish as part of your diet and not necessarily, you know, this very specific salmon or even coconut oil is major here. And I do speak about coconut oil. I do a lot of research into coconut oil and the fact that in some instances it actually works very similarly to olive oil with respect to increasing your HDL, not increasing your LDL. So allowing that flexibility with coconut oil instead of someone having to purchase olive oil in that sense. Or sometimes we will make coconut oil here as well. So that's a, a cultural practice here and teaching around that instead of completely trying to exclude it. 
I think there's there's something to the idea that foods that are local to you are going to be the most health supportive. And I think, you know, and we are looking at some of the research on like, look at the research on Inuit people eating Mm -hmm. so much saturated fat and such a high fat diet. And they didn't have any of the chronic diseases that we have here. And I really do think there's something, something to that idea of, you know, local food being the most health supportive, Mm -hmm. sort of similar to my, my lobster. I I will say it's it's pretty much impossible to eat local in New Hampshire in the winter, but you know, there's some (laughs) other things, other things you can do. So, you know, you brought up the the whole idea of those anti-inflammatory herbs and spices and cultural foods. And you know, something that that I definitely have come across as an integrative and functional dietitian is sort of, you know, the argument that. Often it even comes from other dietitians where, you know, they're, they're saying these things aren't, you know, quote unquote evidence-based because there aren't like, you know, randomized controlled trials of thousands of people eating turmeric or eating, you know, ginger, and then Mm -hmm. looking at the outcomes, you know, even though there are thousands of years of usage and like, you know, being handed down through generations, like this herb is helpful for this situation. And it's just, you know, sort of becomes part of the culture. You know, it's that food as medicine idea. Do you, do you find that with certain foods as well? Absolutely. Yes. So I find that being very common. I do think that there is and research being focused on herbs and spices and the impact because you hear herbs and you think, oh my gosh, it's not medically supported. It's not evidence-based. This could be harmful for you. You need to avoid these things. And it sends a really crazy message, especially here in the Caribbean, we have something called bush tea. And bush tea is really just a concoction of different foods. And like my uncle, I told him I'm going to sit down with him and I have a book and write on all of these things because they are unofficially trained in bush medicine. Or you say medicine, but it's not really used like that. So it's like, if you have a cold, okay, let's put these things together. And what we found is that in, in some instances, it's like science is not catching up to these things. So although maybe they're not able to really explain the exact compounds that are found in these foods, but they have been found to, you know, work generally. But within the profession, it's difficult to really make certain recommendations because we do operate from an evidence-based standpoint. So even within integrative nutrition, you know, there's this concept of not doing any harm, but also a middle ground between not enough evidence-based research, but, you know, uh, something that's not going to have a negative impact on your health generally. And so they're just finding that middle ground with respect to how do I direct my patients or my clients to being able to use certain foods and herbs and spices that may not have the thorough of, you know, evidence to support it. That is something that I've also found. And I've also found a lot of resistance, like when you think of the older population of the, within the Caribbean diaspora, they're not going to give those things up <laughs> because that's what they know. That's what we've been raised with. You know, you have your lime and honey. I mean, that's, that has more support now, but growing up, it really didn't. Or you have, you know, like food that food push for different uses. And it's, it's really fascinating. I've always been fascinated by it. But then it's also seen as this negative thing because it's like the science is not there. So there's really um, an unexplored area with foods and spices and the impact and these traditional medicine practices that are being handed on that in some cases are being lost because of conventional medicine. I think a few interesting things you, you know, I love, you know, how you, you mentioned that science is still kind of catching up to all of these traditional medicinals and herbals that have been used for thousands of years. I think what's also interesting is how science thinks that it can do better, you know? So instead of studying a food, you know, as a whole or in the context of an entire diet, they're like, oh, let's extract curcumin from turmeric and give this to people in a supplement. And then they're not seeing the same results, but there's like, you know, we think we know better than nature sometimes. Mm -hmm. And like the bottom line is we just, 
We just don't. And I think, you know, evidence-based really means it's a combination of, well, what does the available literature say? What has been shown in clinical practice and experience, you know, my clinical judgment and the patient's goals and needs all play into that concept of evidence-based. And, you know, I do think there are so many things out there that fall into that, like, well, we don't have any evidence, you know, per se to say that this thing is beneficial, but on the other hand, it's not harmful either. You know, I'm thinking of like the common sort of fertility old wives tale that pineapple uh, can support implantation after ovulation. Um, and it's like, if you like pineapple, feel free to, to eat pineapple after you ovulate. You know, we don't have any, any evidence to show that it's, you know, magical or beneficial, but it's not going to hurt if you like pineapple. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you don't like pineapple or pineapple's not available to you, or, you know, it's difficult to get, like, don't force yourself to do something just because you think you Definitely. should. <laughs> exactly. And there are two things I want to highlight as well. So when you spoke about, you know, science thinking that it moves better and extracting certain compounds, then is when we fail to acknowledge the symmetry of nature. So mm-hmm. there's so many other compounds that support this main active ingredient that we have identified as the active ingredient. Because, you know, who knows? Um, there are other things in there that we really well together. And when you extract this as an individual ingredient, as you said, there's no guarantee that it's going to work in the same way that that natural food is going to work. And hence, our food uh, first approach to nutrition is acknowledging that there's synergy beyond what we have even discovered completely. And then also, it's really interesting that you said that about pineapple because there is a folklore here that, you know, you need to avoid pineapple because it can cause early miscarriage. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it's really different. And I say it as a folklore, again, because of the way that the information is passed along and the lack of science to support that specifically. But it does have something to do with like cocoa and pineapple being avoided in like early pregnancy, you know, but again, it's not science-based. And then you do have a different perspective on what that pineapple is capable of doing. So it's really inconclusive information in yeah. many realms. I always try to, you know, do the deeper digging on common myths like that, you know, and with pineapple, what's recommended out there is to eat the core of the pineapple Mm -hmm. because, you know, they say it's the highest source of bromelain, which is that anti-inflammatory enzyme. And it's like, okay, theoretically, I could see how you know, lowering inflammation might help implantation at that time. I was like, way deep in agricultural journals, trying to find what the most potent source of bromelain is in a pineapple. And I could find nothing about the core and pineapple core having more bromelain. What I did find was that pineapple stems are very high in bromelain and that the bromelain supplements that are out there on the market are actually made up of the stems. So it's, you know, it's like, there's like a little piece of truth that then gets kind of stretched and it's like, where did that come from? And I actually did some research into pineapples as well, but pineapple leaves. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating to see even some of the similarities and differences in the nutrient composition between the leaves and the main fruit and the concentration of bromelain. Yeah. So it's really, pineapple is a fascinating fruit. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to mm-hmm. expand upon it a little more as a dietitian. And I, di- you know, went to school to become a dietitian and cultural competency is one of the competencies that you have to achieve in your schooling mm-hmm. and your internship. And, you know, what that looked like in my personal education was basically two weeks of a module dedicated to learning about one culture. There's a a particular group of refugees that are common in my state. And so we had to learn about what that typical diet looks like and what sort of recommendations we would make in that situation. So yeah, really not a whole lot of Mm -hmm. cultural competency if I only (laughs) learned about one culture for Mm -hmm. two weeks. So I think something that that's sort of been brought to light a little bit, at least in the dietetics world, 
is we can't be culturally competent in every country, every culture in the world. You know, it's it's impossible to really know all of the foods that any specific culture is eating. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of cultural humility versus cultural yeah. competence? Yeah. So I'm fortunate to say that I've had a long, a more extensive introduction to culture and nutrition <laughs> than you had. And I'm proud to say that at least, you know, my master's paid off with something. But when you think about cultural competence, so I think cultural competence has become like this baseline, very basic way of trying to acknowledge that, oh, there are different cultures and there are different, you know, food practices. But when you think of cultural humility and I even add in cultural sensitivity, you know, it's really about not only assessing your own biases and prejudice, but also going into a consultation or into a conversation with someone with a clean slate. So I think we do learn this very black and white way about cultures like, you know, Muslims won't eat pork and Adventists don't eat this. And, and it's very black and white because I remember learning about Adventism in my class. And I'm like, my husband is Adventist and I could add like 10 different things to that list. You know, so there's really a lot that's still missing. So when you move into that space with someone who is of a different culture or even a different ethnicity, you go in open-minded yet again, simply because, not because I am a black person or I was raised as a Muslim or, you know, I come from a Christian background, means that I necessarily practice some of these things. So having that understanding of, first off, being able to assess yourself, identify where you do and you do have these, um, you know, cultural biases. Uh, it's just the way that we raised and so now it's our job to really educate ourselves, being able to identify where you stand and then acknowledging that when you're dealing with someone else, one, not making assumptions because mm-hmm. of what they look like, where they come from, allowing them to really tell you what they do. So you don't think that all Asians, there's a, <laughs> sorry to say like, you know, oh, if you're Chinese and you're supposed to know how to cook Chinese food, that's not necessarily the case, you know? So not us making assumptions that the blanket things that we learned about different cultures necessarily affect everyone from that ethnic group or region or, um, you know, cultural background, uh, you know, being open to allowing this person to guide you. Even as a health professional, be open to allowing your clients to guide you. Like you, it's, it's a mutual relationship. And you have to learn specifically what this person does beyond what you think they do because of, you know, that, that associated background. So I do think having that openness to assess yourself and then see where you stand within that, that, that space and then openness to allow someone else to really tell you who they are, what they do and why without these predetermined judgments of what they should or are expected to be. Yeah. And if anybody, you know, is curious about the implicit bias, bias tests or the, that are from Harvard that you can take all the various ones around. Yeah. So there's a lot of different areas you can look at to the, to sort of examine your own biases. You know, I think what it comes down to is really just, first of all, being aware of some things, you know, even if it is kind of on a surface level, but then going into your working with your clients with that sense of curiosity and asking questions. You know, one of the things that I remember first coming upon was the idea of fasting during Ramadan. And again, you can't make that assumption that everybody who is Muslim fasts during Ramadan, you know, because there are medical conditions that, you know, make it unnecessary. So it actually led to me making my intake form more inclusive by asking, you know, do you fast for any reason, religious or otherwise? And so now you know, when I'm starting working with a client, I know that that may come up in the course of our treatment together, as opposed to before where I'd be like, Ramadan starts tomorrow. Like, I wonder if this person's (laughs) fasting or not. I wonder, I wonder if I should ask, you know, Um, (laughs) and I would, I would always ask and, you know, what does that look like for you? What do you typically do during this time? But you know, as a practitioner, for sure, being, you know, able to make our our intake forms as inclusive as possible can sometimes avoid some of those questions that can come up later. You know, I recently um, 
recently updated my intake intake form to include pronouns. You know, what, what are your pronouns and what name would you like to be addressed by? You know, just because it's like, it's all there, then I don't have to worry about it Mm -hmm. later. And it's, you know, I just don't want to make any assumptions, you know, just because someone's working with me for fertility or whatever about anything about their life, you know? Exactly. And I think to it goes beyond the health professionals. I remember I posted something about fasting once and someone's like really triggered because she's recovering from an eating disorder. And I had to inform her, this is Lent. Like my mom is Roman Catholic. She fasts. That's something that, you know, we grew up doing. And while I'm not trying to trigger you, it's also, you know, a part of someone else's lifestyle. So, you, you know, regardless of what it is you are personally experiencing, you know, still allowing someone else to have their own experiences without necessarily making it about, you know, what's happening to you. Just sort of acknowledge that people are different, there are differences. It doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it different. And allowing someone else to have their own experiences, people fast. And even though there's this really negative concept of fasting because of, you know, intermittent fasting and fat diets and things, intuitive fasting and all these things, but just sort of acknowledging that they are, you know, these really important influences behind why someone would do what they do. And sort of just giving them that space to be who they need to be, be who they are within that, you know, and sort of removing yourself and your implicit biases from that experience for them in particular. Yeah. So this has been such a great discussion. I think we've covered so many different areas of, you know, incorporating culture, even when struggling with a medical diagnosis. I do have one more question I want to ask, which is, you know, I know you experienced this yourself coming to school in the U.S. and then being kind of stuck here um, through the (laughs) pandemic. You know, do you have any tips for people on, you know, how to maybe stay connected with their culture and find the the foods and types of foods they're familiar with, even if they may be far from home? Yeah. So for me, I was fortunate. I will say fortunate because there are some places in the U.S. that's more difficult. But I was fortunate to have resided in places where I had access to these Caribbean grocery stores. So I was able to purchase a lot of these familiar foods. But there were cases where I adapted. So when we're making callaloo, for example, there's this particular leaf that we use. It's a taro leaf or the callaloo bush. And I had to use spinach to substitute. So, you know, there are ways that even if you don't have like the immediate access to these very specific traditional things that we use. So getting a little bit more creative with some substitutions that make it as close to home as possible. I do think it's really nice to stay connected with that food side of traditional foods while you are abroad. For me, it helped me feel connected to home. It cured my homesickness. Uh, So still being able to, you know, indulge in some of these foods, whether you cook them, if there's someone nearby that you're able to purchase cooked food like that, sharing that culture, like, you know, with some potlucks and being able to share some of these meals with your friends and really exploring that side of it allowing them to share their culture with you. Uh, but I do think if it's something that's really important to you, that you can absolutely stay connected to your culture, to your food culture while you are in a different place. Uh, and just sort of working within the restraints, because there will be some restraints with what you have access to. But I also saw that even within the US, like there are some things like we can get guava, guava, guava. <laughs> you know, that was something I got in like Walmart grocery or... No, was it Walmart? I don't think. I can't remember. That was something that was major for me to be able to get abroad. I love it. Absolutely. So I do think that there's some avenues that have made it more accessible to get some of these imported fruits into the U.S., being able to identify some of these places and just, you know, really just loving a culture for what it is and still being able to connect with it in different ways without feeling like you're in a new place and you have to completely give it up because you're somewhere different and staying connected with that. It's kind of, it helps me and it, you know, may help someone else, especially with that transition to a new place, you know, adopt a different lifestyle. Yeah, I think they can tend to get into the the habit of thinking of food as fuel or just as a source of nutrients. But, you know, food is so much more. It's, you know, that social connection and our family and our culture and joy, you know, like food brings yeah. joy. Um <laughs> So thank you for, for coming on and talking about all of this with our guests. One last 
last thing I want to leave our audience with is, you know, what's, what's one thing that you want people with a diagnosis like PCOS or hormone imbalances, you know, who think they might have to follow a specific way of eating? Like what's one thing you would want them to take away from this episode? I would want you to take away that regardless of your diagnosis and how you may feel about that, that food is still something that you can enjoy. Food is still something that you can have flexibility with without compromising your health and health outcomes. And I would want you to remove the guilt and shame of indulging in certain foods because of a condition that you have. You're not, you're not less healthy if you have something that's high in carbs, if you have diabetes, you're not less healthy if you know you've made a different decision. So I do want you to give yourself that grace, give yourself that flexibility, align yourself with people who support that and understand that you do not need to shorten diet or fat diet to manage your condition. You know, you, you go in for the long term, for the long haul, and you continue to experience joy through food and joy through being able to self-manage and understand more about what's happening to your body. And, you know, just respect food for all that it is beyond this really stringent thing that's, you know, good or bad for you. So just really give yourself grace, flexibility, remain open and understand that you can continue to enjoy that aspect of your life, regardless of the diagnosis you've received. Yes. So, so important. Um, Can you tell people where they can find you, Amber? Yes. So you can find me across social media at The Cultural Dietitian. My website is at um, www.theculturaldietitian.com. I do have blogs that I write on my website as well as my freelance writing. I am on social, um, Instagram and Facebook. I have a LinkedIn profile (laughs) that I check regularly, (laughs) occasionally. But those are my platforms right now. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. We've been speaking with Amber Charles Alexis, who is a registered dietitian and public health nutritionist about the importance of cultural foods when dealing with your diagnosis. Thank you and see you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced.